In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the last two home retreats, we began to look at the lives and writings of some of the fathers of the church. First, we looked at somebody very close to home, at least to us here at Ampleforth in St. Hildred, who, who was just over there at Revo. Then we looked at somebody who was spiritually quite close to St. Hildred, if perhaps not geographically, in Blessed Gerrick of Igny, who was another 12th century Cistercian abbot. For this third talk, I thought we might go a bit further afield to someone a bit more exotic, um, St. Dorotheus of Gaza, who was a 6th century monk and abbot in Palestine, 6th century just before the Arab conquest then. Um, and he's somebody whose writings have had an enduring appeal and importance for followers of the monastic way of life, but also for um, people like yourselves, I guess, who um, are interested in it and perhaps admirers of it. As with Gerrick, so St. Dorotheus doesn't leave people who are preparing home retreats with a wealth of biographical information, sadly. The introductions to the editions of his very few writings, relatively, give us some hints, though, um, and outlines as to what his life might have looked like. He seems to have been born at Antioch in Syria towards the beginning of the 6th century, maybe about 505 AD, into a Christian family, not untypically in the Byzantine Empire of the time. And he seems to have been well educated, and as well as the usual pillars of a, a classical education, you know, philosophy and so on, um, rhetoric, he seems to have had a medical background. Ironically, his own health seems to have been poor, and it's not clear why that was. Did he overdo it as a student, or was he a bit too athletic in his early attempts to live an ascetic life? We don't know. But what we do know is that it meant that his own bodily asceticism later on, as a monk, had to be distinctly moderate. Well, in circumstances that we don't really understand or know about, he ends up joining the monastery of somebody called Abbot Seridos at a place called Sawatha, somewhere near Gaza, um, at a precise location which maddeningly um, frustrates attempts to be located, despite many an hour um, on Google Maps. Well, once in the monastery, Dorotheus decides to apply himself to his sacred studies with the same vigour and, and application um, that he had in his secular studies before he was a monk. The community of abbot Seridos is in some ways an unusual one. Unusual because on paper, Seridos is the abbot, the spiritual father. But in practice, there's something else going on. Seridos is actually a disciple of two old hermits, um, even more exotically named than St. Dorotheus, Barsanufius, um, who was also called the Grand Old Man, and John, who was called the Other Old Man. Um, and Seridos seems to have consulted them about everything. You might ask, how do we know? Well, the answer is that being semi-eremitical, um, they didn't speak to anybody or meet anybody ever, even each other. Um, and instead, they communicated by short letters, sort of shoved underneath the door, many of which have survived um, and have been compiled into fairly lengthy volumes. So we can, we can see what people asked them and what their replies were. Um, and in those collections, we can see letters to and from the abbot Seridos, but also to and from St. Dorotheus, who seems to have become one of their disciples, at least a disciple of John, the other old man. Well, what else was um, Dorotheus's monastic life like? Well, as with many of us, he had to endure trials. Um, monastic professions are supposed to be joyful occasions, but like weddings, I guess. 
But I caused a bit of alarm among the brethren when, at my simple profession, I chose for the first reading um, the book of Ecclesiasticus, chapter 2, which begins, My son, if you aspire to serve the Lord, prepare yourself for an ordeal. I did that not because I had a sort of fetish for difficulties and hardships or because I, I felt it in a cerebral and sort of theoretical way. It must be true because it says it in the Bible. No, I did it because it had been my experience, experience which in hindsight um, now I would say was bitter but fruitful. In the case of St. Dorotheus, well, in the first place, he had to put up with, we've already said it, the, the relatively poor state of his physical health and consequently the inability to be especially athletic when it came to bodily asceticisms, you know, fasting and, and so on. Nevertheless, there was obviously something about him because his abbot, Seridos, asked him to be porter of the monastery and guest master. Quite important jobs, really. And, and during that time, he says, several of the brothers, his own brethren, used to like to reveal their thoughts to me. I don't know why. Obviously the sort of person that people like to speak to. But even that was the occasion for difficulties because there were those among his brothers, perished the thought, who were deeply jealous of him um, and treated him badly. So much so that he began to wonder um, whether he might not be better off as a hermit without the encumbrance of the brethren. Um, well, uh, this pipe dream was scotched by the inevitable letter to, um, in this instance, the other old man, John, or more likely by his reply, because John told him that the hermit life was for the perfect, and for those who were still on the way to perfection, it was the road not to perfection, um, but to pride and spiritual ruin. So um, the ideas of becoming a hermit sort of bit the dust, really. Well, once John died, Barsanufius, the other old man, withdrew into a definitive seclusion, stopping the letters even. And at that point, Dorothea seems to have left the monastery of Seridos to found his own monastery. And it's thought that it's from this period, when he was the abbot of this other monastery, that the writings of his that we now have, his instructions, as we'll hear, um, stem. The, the Greek name for them was didaskalia, and as I just said, it meant something like lessons, teaching, instructions, um, a bit like the abbot gives us on a Wednesday night in the community here. Um, and I'd like to spend the rest of this retreat talk um, sharing with you some of the quotations that have been important to me from Dorotheus, because there, there are lots, really. Um, I read the instructions, as they're usually called in English, first when I was a novice, um, and, and a junior. And I made quite a lot of notes of quotations that I thought useful, important at the time. And I won't be able to share all of them with you because there were 35 index cards in quite small writing. Um, but maybe to just go through what you might think of as the sort of creme de la creme, really, if you like. Um, in addition, in the description in the YouTube version of this talk, just underneath the video, when you click on show more, um, there's a link to a complete text of one of the discourses, discourse number six, called On Refusal to Judge One's Neighbour. You can also get it on the Abbey website um, in the appropriate section. And that's really for you to read if you feel called to do so and to ponder in your own time. Before I launch, though, into my own sort of purple bits of Dorotheus, mainly from that discourse, I thought I might just say a little something about what it is about Dorotheus that captivates me and what it is that I find so attractive and helpful. I think the first and in some sense the most important reason that Dorotheus appeals to me is that it's clear that every word that he writes is the fruit of experience. 
Um, and it's that experience that he's seeking to pass on, not sort of theoretical musings, but this is how my life has been. And I think there's something very monastic about that. It, it's true that monastic life doesn't have a monopoly on the notion of experience, but the business of learning to find the way to God by experience, experientially, is an essential core um, of the monastic way of life. It's emphatically not self-help. It's not something you can do if you have the book, um, you know, monastic holiness for dummies. It's not. Um, we go to God through the prayers of others, yes, through their example, yes, but also through their help and their guidance. Probably these others um, will mainly be people with whom we live, with whom we have some interaction now, um, people who are alive, in other words. But there will also be people who have gone before us and whose witness, usually through their writings or other people's writings about them, can serve as a light for us in the darkness. And it can be pretty dark at times, can it not? Well, the second and third reasons that Doroth appeals to me are linked, really. The second reason is that the image of Dorothea's that we get from the writings is, I think, a very human image in the best sense of that term. He's somebody who knows himself well, but he also knows human nature, and perhaps more especially monastic human nature, that strange beast, um, very well indeed. He knows what we're like. When we set out on a journey towards a particular goal, he knows what pitfalls there are likely to be on the way. And he knows the ways in which our fallen natures will threaten to hijack um, the expedition. But he looks on all of that with a, a great deal of good humour. And he uses that humour, sometimes caricatures of the way monks are, um, to diffuse some of the tension that comes from the pitfalls and from our anxiety or experience of those pitfalls. It's true, they are serious, because life is a serious business. It's a one-shot one thing, isn't it? But there's something even more serious, it turns out, uh, namely God. And Dorotheus seems to think that it doesn't do to fall into that quite serious pitfall, which is the pitfall of taking ourselves too seriously. I guess we normally call that pride in its worst um, manifestation. Um, so humour then. Um, Dorotheus deliberately describes some things to us humorously. Um, at other times, the humour is accidental. You know, we end up being amused because uh, we realise that what he's saying rings so true and it resonates with things that go on in the, in the hidden depths of our own hearts. And in, in all this, he's helping us precisely not to take ourselves too seriously, but to be serious about God and our life. The third reason, which, as I said, is not a million miles removed from, from that second reason, is that Dorotheus is balanced. There's a great sense of balance in Dorotheus. Unlike people up in Syria um, at the time, chaining themselves to pillars or uh, being on the top of the pillar or whatever, um, and even some of the more athletic asceticism of Egypt, there's a great balance um, up there in, in Gaza. And Dorotheus seems firmly to believe that the most important thing to do is to try to live properly the life to which God has called us. Because if we do that, we'll find that actually in that there is ample asceticism and opportunity for self-denial and self-transcendence, getting away, in other words, from this tyranny often of following our own will. Well, um, maybe that's enough from me. Perhaps we can just finish now with a few quotes, um, just with the lightest bit of commentary from me um, to accompany them. The beginning of this talk on not judging the neighbour, he says this, Brothers, 
If we call to mind the words of the holy old men, the fathers in the desert, of course, if we study them carefully at all times, then it'll be difficult to commit sin. It'll be difficult to neglect ourselves. For if, as they tell us, we do not despise things that are minor and seem to us to be of no account, then we shall not fall into things that are great and serious. Real wisdom there, isn't there? Look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves. As I'm always telling you, from these trivial things, from saying, what does this matter, what does that matter, the soul acquires a bad habit and begins to despise even great things. Do you see how serious a failure it is to judge your neighbour? I guess we often think of the big ticket sins as other things, and he's saying, judging the neighbour, it's bigger than you think. Indeed, what is more serious than this? For indeed, what does God hate or turn away from so much as this? As the fathers also say, nothing is worse than judging. And similarly, from these apparently paltry things, a person ends up in a situation of great evil. For, for ex From accepting a small suspicion about the neighbour, a suspicion. From saying, I mean, what does it matter if I listen to what that brother is saying? What does it matter if I listen um, to what that brother is saying? What does it matter if I just say this one thing myself? What does it matter if I just see where this brother is going or what that stranger is up to? The soul begins to neglect its own sins and to concentrate instead on the neighbour. And finally from this, it begins to pass sentence on the neighbour, to talk him down and to set him at naught. And from this, it falls itself into the very things it judges in the other. I guess he's um, putting his finger on something that a lot of us perhaps don't avert to very often, which is just how often we, we go to work on the neighbour as a displacement activity, really, um, to avert our gaze from all the things that we know are wrong, really, in our own life. A bit further on, um, he says, he talks about somebody who refused to judge his neighbour um, and said, you know, today it's him, tomorrow it'll be me. And he says, do you see how enlightened this divine soul was? Not only was he able to flee from judging his neighbours, he also managed to esteem himself to be beneath the level of his neighbours. But what about us, wretches as we are? We condemn all alike. We feel repugnance for people. We set them at naught whenever we see or hear or even suspect something about them. What is worse, we do not even stop at causing this damage to ourselves, no, we go and find some other brother and immediately start saying to him, this and that has happened, and we cause harm to him by placing sinful things in his heart. It's so interesting that, the, putting his finger right on some of the, the, the feelings that we have and the, and the, uh, and the thoughts, I guess, that, that go un, unnoticed even by us, and also just reminding us how bad it is um, to put a bad thought in the heart of somebody else. Impossible to get it out afterwards. goes on. Have we no fear of the one who said, woe to him who gives his neighbour something foul to drink? We do the demon's work, and it does not worry us. For what is the work of a demon except causing trouble and damage? See how we collaborate with the demons in bringing both ourselves and our neighbour to destruction. For anyone who causes damage to someone's soul is aiding and abetting the demons, just as those who work to do what is good for souls work with the holy angels. Interesting, I think. He then has a little commentary on the notion that we get from the scriptures that charity, love, 
um, covers a multitude of sins. And he says this, um, as for us then, if, as I was saying, we have love, that love should cover every fault, as, the, as is the case with the saints, when they see people's faults. Love covers a multitude of sins. We often think if we love, it means we get let off our own sins. But actually it means, you know, love is, is blind in a way to other people's sins rather than wanting to call them out and judge them, according to Dorotheus. He says, I mean, are the saints blind? Do they not see sins? Indeed, who hates sin as much as the saints do? But nevertheless, they do not hate the sinner. It's an old line, isn't it? But it doesn't stop being true. Um, they do not condemn him. They do not turn away from him. Rather, they show him sympathy. They admonish him. They entreat him. They seek to heal him, you know, rather than tear him limb from limb. They seek to heal him as they would a sick limb. They do everything they can to save him. It's just like fishermen when they cast a hook into the sea to, and catch a big fish and they sense that it's agitated and going berserk. They don't try to pull him in there and then, heavy-handedly, otherwise the line would break and end up being destroyed, wrecked. Um, rather, they immediately give him some line and let him go wherever he wants. And when they sense that the line has gone slack and that he's stopped writhing about, then they begin to draw him in again, little by little. In this way, the saints draw a sinful brother to themselves, lovingly and with great patience, and they do not turn away from him or despise him. Or again, it's like a mother who has an unsightly son. She doesn't despise him or turn away from him. She dresses him beautifully and does everything she can to get him to look more graceful. So the saints are always protecting, sorting out and giving assistance to anyone who stumbles, setting him straight at the right time, the right time, so that he doesn't do any harm to anyone else. And in the business, they themselves also progress in the love of Christ. And then he tells a story which I think is, is very moving from the Desert Fathers. He says, what, does, what did Holy Aminus do when some brothers came to him, stirring up trouble and saying, come and see, Abba, there's a woman in the cell of brother such and such? What mercy and compassion he showed, what love was in his holy soul. Knowing that the brother had hidden the woman under a barrel in the cell, he went and sat on it and told the others to search the whole cell. And when they found no one, he said to them, God forgive you, and shamed them, helping them too not to recklessly believe ill spoken about a neighbour. As for the guilty party, when the opportune moment came, he not only protected him in the sight of God, but he also straightened him out. For after he had thrown the rest of them out, he took him by the hand and he said to him, Brother, have a care for yourself. And immediately the brother felt shame and was pierced with compunction. At once, the love and compassion of the old man went right into his soul. It's interesting, isn't it? Not a great ranting and raving, uh, you know, not a great sort of dressing down, but just that dart of compassion. Reminds me of the, the saying of St Francis de Sales that um, a teaspoon of honey attracts more flies than a barrel full of vinegar. I guess the connection is the barrel. Um, and similarly, he says, let us help one another as we do with our own limbs. For which of us, having a wound on his hand or his foot or one of the other limbs, would despise it um, or cut off his own limb, even if it were septic? Would he not be more likely to wash it and clean it and put a bandage on it, seal it up, anoint it with holy oil, pray, ask the saints to pray for it, um, as Abba Zosimus says? In short, he will never abandon his own limb, even if it has developed a putrid smell 
but will do everything he can to bring it back to health. And this is precisely how we ought to show compassion to one another, help each other, or get other more able people to help us, and do all we can in thought and deed to help ourselves and each other. We so often we lose the focus on, on that aim, don't we? The aim is to bring people, and ourselves indeed, to, to wholeness, to holiness, not to, not to condemn. Um, I hope I'm not the only one who knows that that's a, a difficult ideal to live up to. Well, lastly then, um, he says, I'll tell you about an image from the fathers so that you may understand the power of what I'm saying. Imagine a circle um, drawn on the earth uh, with a compass and a centre. Now, the centre is precisely the middle of the circle. Uh, apply your mind to what I'm saying. Now imagine that this circle is the world with God at its centre and the lines radiating towards the centre of the circle are people's various different ways of life. When the saints desire to come into the middle to draw near to God, as they progress along the journey inwards, they get closer to God, it's true, but also to one another. And the closer they get to one another, the closer they get to God. He's saying it works both ways. Um, and it's difficult to know which comes first, maybe. Similarly, imagine the opposite. For when they move away from God and turn towards the outside, you can see that the further out they go, the further apart they get from one another, and the further they are from God too. So he's saying these two things are linked. If we want to be close to God, we have to be close to our neighbours. Uh, if we get close to our neighbours, then hopefully that will bring us close to God too. I think it's real practical wisdom. Well, I hope that gives you a flavour of what it is that I like about Dorotheus. I hope maybe it has caused you to be attracted to him. Well, if so, have a look at that text. Um, it's like a rude translation, but, but have a look. Um, as I said, it's just beneath the YouTube video or on the Abbey website. And have a read for yourself. And what is it that strikes you? Is there anything in there that, that you feel attracted to or which speaks to you? If you felt like reading the rest of the discourses, they're available in a reasonably slim volume, hopefully not too expensive, published by Cistercian Publications. Um, and there are only 14 of them. Um, and I think they're all, they're all worth a read, really. Well, enough. Um, may God bless you on this day of retreat with St Dorotheus.